0: As I began reading through Parshat Mishpatim this week, it took me back a little to the days of working in Boy camp as head staff. One of the most intimidating parts of being head staff is that you have to do the planning to make the experience great, not only for the campers, but for the staff as well. And when you're starting out the summer, one of the greatest challenges is planning staff orientation. Now, why is staff orientation such a challenge? Because there is a ton of information that you want to give over to these staff members without having them quit before the summer even starts. So one thing that you have to do is you have to make sure to not only give over the technicalities of what the staff is going to be doing, from the first day of camp bus schedule to how does laundry work and all the technicalities that the staff needs to know. But you also want to make them passionate about what they are going to be doing this summer. So a lot of staff orientation is trying to balance between these like pump up, exciting getting the staff passionate for what they're going to be doing and the small nitty gritty that you have to make sure to cover without making them too bored. One thing that you know specifically not to do is to give an incredible pump-up session. Get these staff members super, super excited. Tell them how amazing they are and what incredible work they're going to be doing. And then in the next breath, Give them the first day of camp bus schedule because you know what will happen? All the excitement that you built up, all of the passion that they were working on in that previous moment will be lost because then they are talking about whether the bus should arrive at the bus stop at 10.02 or 10.03 and where each of them has to be standing and all momentum you have gained is completely lost. So, a much better approach is usually to build off of one of those amazing passionate sessions where everyone comes off so exciting excited with talking about something else that is exciting. What does any of this have to do with this week's parsha? We finish off parsha Yitro with Matan Torah, undoubtedly one of the most exciting moments in all of Jewish history. There's the kola, uvrakim. There's light and thunder. And Hashem's presence is on her Sinai, And everyone there feels and hears Hashem. We receive the Aseret Hadibro, And then we have, immediately after, this incredible episode of Matan Torah, we have Ve'ela HaMishpatim. What? The Hamishpatim. These are the rules. The rules. We just went from incredible matan Torah, where we were all literally shaking from feeling the presence of God so tangibly, to Veila Hamishpatim Asher Tassim Lufnehem. These are the rules that I lay out before you. When we enter into Parsha Mishpatim this week, we. Encounter not some exciting story that we would expect to follow Matzah Torah about an incredible spiritual experience, delving into the most spiritual mitzvah that we are given over by Hashem. Nope. Rather, it is here is what is what happens if there is a Jewish slave. Here is what happens if your ox gores your ox. Here is what happens if someone hits someone else. If there are damages. If there are no damages. Pretty much. The bus schedule of Judaism, the day to day boring laws. Now, yes, you can say these are civil laws, they're important. And once we become a nation, we are now a nation with a Torah, we must also learn how to run a functional society. But on that, you can ask two questions why would Parsha Mishpatim specifically follow Matan Torah? Why would we come off of this? Incredible experience, straight into the mishpatim, straight into the day to day, the civil law, the boring mitzvah, the most boring mitzvah in the Torah, the day to day. And another way to ask it is: if this is just civil law, right? What happens if someone harms another person? What if someone ruins someone else's property? Basics of civil law. Then what makes them so holy? Why do we even have to be commanded these things by Hakadish Parachu? What are we added? What is added to civil law by the fact that it is given over to us by Hashem? Is this really just our version of something like the Code of Hammurabi, another code of laws that existed at that time? Or is this really something more? So to understand this, I want to look at the first Rashi and the Parsha. Again, the Pasuk says, ha-mishpatim. These are the mishpatim that I lay out before you. And Rashi comments here and says, ha-mishpatim. Kom mar ela, harishonim. Anywhere where it says, "ella," It negates what was written before it. However, when it says, When there is the Vav, which changes the nature of the word, ve'ilah mosif al-harishomim, it doesn't negate what came before it, rather it adds on to what came before it. So this even strengthens our question, that it is not just, okay, one chapter of the Torah ends and we move on to another. Rather, Hashem is specifically connecting these two, two chapters through the use of the word ve'ilah, and these are the mishpatim it seems to flow directly one to the other without even that break or that separation in the language. So Rashi says, what is the purpose of this? Why is Hashem connecting the two? "Mahari mi sinai, just like the first ones were given at Har Sinai, just like the Esherah Hadib wrote were given at Sinai. Af eilu mi sinai. So too, these laws were given at Har Sinai. The lama Nismacha ha parasha dinin la parasha mizbayach, why is the parsha of the dinim of the laws written in connection to the parsha of the mizbeach? We hear about the mizbeach at the very end of the last parsha. That Rashi quotes the um, the Mechilta that says the Sanhedrin must always be located next to the mikdash. So Rashi's making two points. Why this connection here? So that we should understand just as the Sarat Hadibra were given at Har Sinai, so too these laws were given at Har Sinai. Lest we should doubt that this is just a code of laws that has no spiritual significance, no, we must recognize that this too was divinely given over to us at Har Sinai, and therefore there is a significance to these mitzvot as well. This is not simply our code of laws. And the second point of Rashi, which we are going to try to explain further, is why are these two partial written in connection to each other? Shetasim Sanhedrin Itzal HaMikdash. That the Sanhedrin must always be placed next to the Mikdash. The Gor Aryeh, a super commentary on Rashi, comments here and says. Nimtza, he's asking, why is it so important that the sanhedrin should be located next to the mizbeach? Nimtza ki he sim shalom He says there is a similarity between the mizbeach and din. What is the similarity between the two? He sim shalom Both of them are connectors that create peace in this world. Ki shalom because what we need is to have peace between us and our Father in heaven. But we also need peace between us and our neighbor. And we see that both of these things are connected. For this reason, the Mizbeach and the Lishkat Hagazit, where the Sanhedrin were located, were both in the em, em, in the em, sorry in the center of the world. Um. Lishkat Hagazit hatavor haadam. The Lishkan Hagazit is like the center of the human body. It connects everything together. Because the center connects everything because it is at the center. We find that the Mizbeach and the Lishkan Hagazit connect everything because they are at the center. What is the Gura telling us? What does Rashi really mean that the Sanhedrin and the Mikdash must always be located one to another? He's telling us that they serve the same purpose. They are both connectors. What are they connecting? And this is the point that we are going to specifically focus on. You could say that the Mizbayah connects us to Avinu Shabbat and the Sanhedrin connects us one to another. However, the Aryeh is not making this point. What he is saying is that both of them accomplish both goals. That the Mizbeach and the Lishkan HaGazi both connect us to Avinu Shabash and one to another. What does that mean? That there is no separation between what separates connects us to God, and what co- connects us to one another, because vo- both are vital for our connection to the other. That in order to properly be connected to our fellow man, we must have a solid connection with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And in order to solidly connect with Hashem, we must have a sound relationship with our neighbor. That the lesson that we learned from here is the importance of civil law in creating a situation in which we can connect to a And that is why Mishpatim had to be written immediately after the Aseret HaDibro. Now what Hashem is saying to us is, Af mi sinai gam, gam That just like the Aseret HaDibro, which so clearly will connect you to me, were given over to Adhar Sinai, so too these Mishpatim, that are going to help you to create din and shalom and emet they are going to help you to create a just society that as well is going to help you to connect to me these are mitzvot that i have given you as well just as much as anokhi something that is so obvious in its spiritual in its spiritual nature and how it connects us to hashem so to these mitzvot connect us to hashem this idea is emphasized by a debate that arises in Perk Aleph of, of Perkei Abur. Perk Aleph in Perkei Abur, it, it says, Shimon Hatzadik Haya Mishai Nesar Nesad Hagadullah. So we're quoting Shimon Hatzadik, Hu Haya Omer, Al Sosha Dvarim Ha'olam Omer, a very famous Mishnah, on three things does the world stand, Al HaTorah, Vial Avoda, Vial Gmilas Chasadim. On Torah, An Avuda, which we typically translate as prayer, and Milas Khasadiman Khazad we for one another. However, later on in the Parak, it says Rabban Shimon Mengam Li Al Hayaumer, Al Shol Shadvarim the world stands on three things Al Hadin, the Al haemet the Al Shalom. It stands on justice and truth and peace. As it says in Zakaria, Mishpat shalom Shaftu Bishaarikan that it says in Zechariah that emet and mishpat and shalom are what you should encounter within your camp. So which is it? Which of these three things truly is what sustains the world? Is it Torah, vodag Milas, chasadim, which are, are all inherently spiritual? These speak to our spiritual sensibilities that say if we ever cease to learn Torah, to do chasad, to daven to Hashem, then the world will cease to exist? Or is it something that seems more simple in nature, that if we have a just society, a peaceful society, society that's based on truth, then the world will continue on. Which one of them is it? And the tor quotes Rabinu Yona in order to, dis- to explain the difference between these two. The tor says, Rabbein Shimon al-gim al-divarem k'ayam al-hadin ha'emet ha'shalom. Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel says we should really read the second of these two Mishnayot as al haolam kayam, that these are the things that sustain the world. Am p'irish d'varim elu we shouldn't understand it that it is because of these three things the world was created. Shahari b'tchilat haperak omer al haolam omer. That is the original list we read. Those are the three reasons why the world was created. He says the first list we should understand that these are the three reasons for which the world was created. Torah, avoda, and milas chasadim. These are the main goals in the world, these are the purpose of the world, is Torah, Avodah, and Gamilas hasadim? Once the world was created for the purpose of Torah, Avodah, and Gamilas hasadim, then we have these three things, that it, that these are the things that are sustaining the world. hadinin, shadanin bin ish kayam, ki hadin, that if we didn't have din, we didn't have justice, and we didn't have emet, we didn't have peace, and we didn't have shalom, then the world would cease to exist. So the message that the Torah is giving to, over to us from Rabinu Yonah is that what is the purpose of the world? The purpose of the world is Torah. It is our spiritual pursuit. It is our connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But what sustains the world, what keeps the world going, what allows us to accomplish these goals of Torah, abodam, mils fasadim, are din, emet, and shalom, our peace and justice and truth. So how does this relate to the previous idea? Back to our question of what is Mishpatim doing after Ma'amad Har Sinai? It's that the Mishpatim, these basic rules are the mechanisms through which we bring Hashem's presence down into everything we do in this world in order to sustain the world, to be able to accomplish our goals of connecting to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So they themselves are commanded, we are, we are commanded in these mitzvot themselves by God as goals in and of themselves to establish din, to establish emet, to establish shalom, these are not just nice things that exist in the world. Hashem is saying without these things, without following the paths that I gave you in order to create a just society, a truthful society, a peaceful society, you will not be able to aspire for the loftier goals of Torah. So the title of this year was Midos are not manners. That it is possible to look at Parsha Mishpatim and to say, oh, these are all just basic things that this is how we run a functional society it's not really a mitzvah it's not a mitzvah to treat your friend nicely it's not really a mitzvah to pay back a loan or to pay back someone if you harm their property but that's specifically what Hashem is teaching us here that Hashem is saying the elah Mishpatim you heard those Hassar and hadibru. Now we have the mishpatim. now we have the rules. These are the mitzvah that are going to play out not once a year, not once in a lifetime. These are the mitzvah that are going to come up in your life every single day. These are the mitzvah that are going to help you to create a society in which you can keep what we consider to be the holier mitzvah. Sorry, hold on one second. So typically, each week we look at one midah and what that midah is and the role model of that midah. But I believe that Parsha mishpatin is the kind of meta Parsha of all the midot. That this is the Parsha in which Hashem gives over to us. These are all the mido that you are meant to develop within yourselves. These are the way that you are meant ways that you are meant to act with one another, and only through working on those mido. Will you be able to accomplish your loftier goals? Rev Rosenzweig, Rosh Hashiva Noayu, states beautifully. Um, he wrote an article on the um, educational nature of Parsha Mishpatim. And he says, Chosha Mishpat is not merely the most, so Chosha Mishpat is specifically the monetary laws. He said, it is not merely the most ideal, efficient system of civil law, but also the most idealistic and spiritually ambitious expression of man's interaction with his fellow lest the universal and pragmatic motifs blind us to the greater spiritual goals and opportunities of Jewish civil law. He says, within Jewish civil law, within Parsha Mishpatim, we have a certain idealism. We have a spiritually ambitious expression of man's interaction with his fellow. That these interactions that we have with one another, the way that we react to situations that arise, that seem to be of such a mundane nature, is so inculcated with spirituality if we look at them through that lens. That this is a spiritual system to create a just and spiritual society, not merely civil law. So what I want to do now is I want to look at one specific example in this week's Parsha of one of the rules that seems to be relatively mundane, and how it is meant to inculcate within us a specific mitzvah, what that mitzvah is, and how it expresses that mitzvah. And the example I want to look at is the first example that comes up in this week's parasha, and that is of Ebed Ivri. If you learned with us last year, we discussed the relationship between an Ebed and his master. And we began that year by discussing how strange it is that the institution of slavery is found in the Torah at all. Slavery is something that so rubs our modern sensibilities the wrong way that it is so hard to imagine that in the Torah, which is meant to be this ultimate guiding light of morality and ethics, that the Torah could allow for the institution of slavery is just beyond our understanding. So what we need to ask ourselves is, why does Hashem give us the laws of evidivry? And first, we can try to understand it by saying that the institution of slavery that we find in the Torah is very different from what we understand as what slavery was like in our nation's history and in the history of the world. This was not a slavery in which we, there was abuse and um, the expression of power of the master over the slave, Rather, the institution of Evid ivri was very much one we would imagine more as a indentured servitude, or something more like hired help. That the Evid Ivry had to be treated properly. It says in the Gemara that if you are eating aged, if you are drinking aged wine, your slave needs to be drinking aged wine. If you are eating fresh bread, your slave cannot be eating stale bread. If you are sleeping on a comfortable bed, your slave cannot be sleeping on an uncomfortable bed. The Gemara tells us as well, shakol mi shakona evit ivri. Anyone who acquires for themselves an evit ivri, kikona adon atmo. It's as if they really acquired for themselves a master. That the level of respect that the master has to show to the evit ivri is equivalent of someone who is his equal, not that he is the master over another person. So while we can first understand in in that context that this was a more respectful relationship, it still calls us to question, why take something inherently bad and include it, but make it good? Why couldn't we just leave slavery out of the Torah? Why did we have to include this institution of evidently as well, at, at all? So I want to look at two different approaches. One is how it is going to affect the master. Or the nation in general, and the other is how it is going to affect the Evan himself. And to understand this, we have to understand how did one become an Evanivri. We are given two option, two paths as to how someone could have become an Evanivri. The first was that they landed in a level of poverty from which they were not able to escape without selling themselves into slavery. So if someone ended up in extreme poverty. They were given this opportunity to sell themselves into this indentured servitude in which they would go into a master's house. This was not going to be painful, this was not going to be torturous. Rather, they were going to have to work for someone else for a certain number of years. They could stipulate up to six years, and then in the seventh year they would go free. That was the first way they would arrive at becoming an evident free, is they would sell themselves. The other option is that they would commit a crime. Most often it was stealing, that they owed something to someone. They would steal and then based in would sell them as their punishment, would sell them into servitude. Again, it would be, they would be able to stipulate up to six years. And in the seventh year, they would go free. In both of these situations, once that seventh year has arrived, if they enjoyed being in their master's home so much, they were being taken care of, they were given fresh bread, from aged wine, comfortable beds. Often the, the Torah tells us if they were given a wife and they had children and they wanted to keep those wives and children, then they would have to stay in the master's home. They could be taken over to the doorpost, their ear pierced, and then they were able to stay in that master's home until the Yovel year. In the 50th year, the Jubilee year, all slaves would have to go free. They were, they, were no, they weren't able to extend their stay past that Yovel year. So those are the two ways that someone can end up as an Evit Ivry. So the first approach that we are going to try to look at, which is going to explain to us what the institution of eved Ivry did for society as a whole and for the master specifically, is one that focuses on the fact that why was Evit Ivry included in the Torah? Because slavery existed at that time. And Hashem recognizes that when something exists in society as a whole, we must be given the tools to deal with it as an Am Kadush. How are we as a holy nation going to deal with things that we are going to participate in anyways? So whether it is... We are going to be landowners. How does a Jewish landowner deal with the land that they own? We are going to be Jewish farmers. How do we fo- how do we farm in a religious way? We are going to be Jewish husbands, wives, children. How do we engage in the things that we are going to do naturally in the way that Hashem wants us to? And the institution of slavery was no different at the time that the Torah was given. That while we do say that the Torah is eternal, that the guidance that we are given by the mitzvot and Torah is not set in any one time and place. It was given at one time. And at that time, slavery was very widespread. And therefore, Hashem said, if you are going to have slaves, like everyone else in society around you, I am going to give you a way to have slaves properly. And that is going to be that you are going to treat them with respect. You are going to treat them with civility. You are not going to torture them. These are people that you are not going to look down upon. Rather, you are going to see them for, the, for as human beings who arrived in a difficult situation. And you are going to help them by, A, allowing them into your home. They will work for you. And having this pleasant experience through which they can get back on their feet. So the first approach is it was given in a certain time and place, and Hashem therefore gave us the way to deal with it. We see this idea brought down in a debate between the Rush and the Me'iri. The Rush and the Me'iri are debating whether once we ceased to count the Jubilee year, we no longer count that 50th year, the Yovel year, while we still count Shemitah, we don't count Yovel anymore. The Rush and the Me'iri are debating whether the institution of Evet ivri and the laws that are associated with it, existed beyond the time that we ceased to count the Jewel year. And the Rosh states, He quotes the Gemara that anyone who acquires for himself an Ebed Ivri, it's as if he acquired for himself a master. <Wis> this is specifically talking about an Ebed Ivri. say b'shish. Aval Sahir shana, Sahir Fodesh, Sahir Shabat, Yom, but any other type of hired worker, Lo Amrinan Hakhi, it is not talking about any other type of worker, it is only talking about Evan Ivri. So the Rush's opinion is that all of the rules that apply to an Evid Ivri, how we have to treat them with such respect and kindness only apply to an evidivry specifically, we don't therefore extrapolate and apply them to other types of workers. We have guidelines for how to treat other types of workers, and those come up in the Gemara and other places throughout our literature, and it is not these rules of evidivry that apply in those situations. However, the Me'iri states, today, even though the law of an indentured servant does not pertain once the jubilee is ceased, the traits of piety and civility do not cease. So the Me'iri believed that while the technical institution did not continue on beyond the point where we ceased to count the Yovel year, the ideology that Hashem gave over to us through the institution of Eved Ivry did carry on beyond this time that the technical institution of Eved Ivry no longer existed. That the institution of Eved Ivry was meant to teach the master, and was meant to teach society as a whole, how to teach, how to treat the lowest common denominator in society, that these were people who had landed in such a disadvantaged position. They were either in such a level of poverty that the only way out was for them to sell themselves, or they had um, committed a crime, and. Again, if one steals or one harms another person and takes something away from them, which would be a situation in which they would be sold into becoming an avidivri, they are also probably coming from a place of desperation. That they are stealing because they are so downtrodden, they are so low in society, and therefore the Meiri is saying Hashem not only taught us how to literally have an avidivri, rather Hashem was teaching us how to treat the lowest people in society, those that are in a disadvantaged position in society. And he says, although we no longer have the institution of Ebed Ivri, these lessons of piety and civility definitely did not stop with Ebed Ivri. They give us a general attitude of how we should behave in relation to other people. The Sefer HaKhinuch continues on with this and says, what is the mitzvah that the Sefer HaKinuch is talking about here? In Sefer Devarim, it tells us that when you set free the Ebed Ivri, you should send him off with gifts. As it says in the Pasak: Ha'anik ta'anik lo mitzvoncha migarnecha mikidacha asher b'racha Hashem alukacha lo. From everything that Hashem has given to you, you should give over to the Ebed Ivri, you should not send him out empty-handed. Why is that so that we should be able to inculcate within our nifasho within ourselves. Ma'alot yikarot v'chamudot. We should be able to inculcate within ourselves positive mido. Ve'im ha-nefesh ha-yikara v'maha'la niskal ha-tov, If we have been Zoha to good, from the God who is good, chafit lahativ And Hashem wants to do good for us. Ve'hudanu ve'hidarnu hu shenirachim al misha. We should recognize that Hashem, who is good, gave over to His nation, who is good. So therefore, we have, we should want to give this over to someone else. This is something that is very sikhli, it is very intuitive. We understand that if we have good, we should be giving over good to others. This is something that we don't need to expound upon a lot. This idea that what we find in, mish- in parsha mishpatim are things that may be intuitive to us, but Hashem is commanding us to do them in order for us to recognize that although we may naturally think that we should give to others, Hashem wants to emphasize to us How just how important it is to develop these midot, that they may be intuitive, we may naturally think to give or to do for others or to respect others, but Hashem is saying it is not just a natural instinct, rather it is a mitzvah to do these things. You must develop these things within yourself and act in these ways towards others. So this is the first approach that Hashem gives us this institution of avid Ivri in order that we should be able to um, to participate in what we are going to participate in either way, but in the proper way. And through this, Hashem gives over to us these midot of how to treat another person, how to respect another person, how to see the inherent value, even if so, in someone who is so downtrodden in society. The second approach is based on a piece from Rav Kook in Ein Raya, and it is very similar, but Focuses more on how the institution of Evan Ivry affects the Evan himself. Rav Cook says as well this person who has become an Evan Ivry, he arrived in this situation because of how downtrodden he was. Whether he had to sell himself, whether he was sold into this institution by Basin, he is not in a good place. And Rav Cook specifically focuses on the second option, which is that he committed a crime and landed in this situation. There is this idea that we, people like to analyze and um, calculate the rate of recidivism, which is after someone does a crime, they go to jail, they are released from jail. The recidivism rate is how many of those people end up back in jail a second time. Why is this, and in our society today, the recidivism rate is quite high. Why is that? Because if you take someone who has done something wrong, most likely because they are in a bad situation, you then put them in jail with other people who committed crimes and are in bad situations. They often do not come out rehabilitated individuals who are ready to go out and better society. They often come out as people who have become even more hardened, even more cynical, even more downtrodden through what they experience in jail and through the situation and those that they were surrounded by of Cook says, Hashem was giving over to us a very modern approach to how we should treat criminals. He says, we take criminals and we make sure that there is a compensatory element, that those who are owed something are paid back immediately, that the avidivri, as soon as he is sold into slavery, the money is available to pay back whoever he stole from. There is a punitive element. The punishment that he receives directly correlates to the sin that he committed, which we know as anyone who has studied any aspects of child development or education, you are meant to give punishments that most directly correspond to the action that was done, because that is when it has the most effect. So Hashem says, you took something from someone else, your freedom is going to be taken away from you. So there is this punitive aspect to the punishment that is being given. However, most importantly, and Riff Cook says, there is the rehabilitative element that as opposed to sending this person who did something wrong into a jail to be with other people who did things wrong, you are going to send them into a normal, functional household. You are going to give them the opportunity to be around people who can lead a better path for them, who can show them what it's like to function properly, to, re- to interact properly with those around them. The pasak goes specifically into a situation where the master gives this evad a wife. The evad is then able to have children. And all this time, they are able to be guided by the master through this process. They are able to be shown how to function, what a normal, functional family situation looks like. And through this, when they come out of this institution of evad, of being in his servitude, they come out a rehabilitated person. Not only were they punished, not only was the person who was owed paid back, but they went through a process that was reparative, that they come out better than they went into the situation. And, and when we look at it through this lens of Rav Kook, we say, not only was Hashem inculcating in all of society, this idea of how to treat another person, how to respect someone, even someone that you may have power over. How to respect them as a human being and not simply see them as a slave. Where if Cook is saying it is all Hashem is also helping us to see the humanity and the basic goodness in even the lowest people in society that Hashem is saying these are the most downtrodden. These are those that you really may look down upon. It is helping them to come back and to grow in society as well. So Hashem, through this institution of Ebed is giving to every part of the equation, every person involved, a way to learn in the situation how to better themselves, how to see others, and how to interact properly with others. And this is just one of the examples throughout the Parsha in which Hashem is giving over to us these mitzvot through the mitzvot that he commands us. So while this year was different from the other weeks in which we found one role model with one midah and we were able to learn from that one midah, in this week's parsha we are able to see the root of all midah is that Hashem gave over to us after Matan Torah, Hashem said, Matzah Torah was amazing. It was incredible. It was inspirational. But Ve'ile HaMishpatin, now you have to understand that you have to build yourselves up as human beings. You have to interact properly with the people around you. You have to be able to create a, a community, a society that is based in din, emet, shalom, these basic, basic midot of justice, truth, peace. And only through that are you going to be able to reach your lofty spiritual goals. So, Mir Hashem, may we be able to recognize this, these midot that Hashem have given, has given over to us, through the basic rules that we see in our everyday life, these mishpatim that come up day in and day out, the way we interact with the people around us. May we recognize the godliness within these elements as well and be able to use them to refine ourselves, to work on each and every one of these midos so that we can ultimately create the world of Torah, Avoda, and Gwilas Fasadim based in Din, MS and Shalom.